Hello and welcome to Healthline 3. I'm Terry Simmons. Today we're talking with Dr. Katherine Gale. She's with WK Advanced Cardiac Imaging of Willis Knight and Health System. We're talking about multimodality cardiac imaging and specifically about women's heart health. And we're talking, we'll be taking your calls throughout the show. As a reminder, please make sure you're in a quiet room with your TV turned down all the way before making your call. And that number is 318-219-4569. And you'll see it at the bottom of your screen throughout the show. So now to Dr. Gale, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to speak with you. It's been a wonderful talk. Um, we've spoken a couple of times this morning already on the air telling people what we're going to be talking about. So remind us again about what it really is, the multimodality imaging. Sure. So multimodality cardiac imaging is really using all of our available imaging techniques to get to a diagnosis or help to formulate a treatment plan for a patient. So certain patients, they're processes and diseases are very straightforward and we can get our answers pretty quickly. Other patients and patients who usually present to me are ones who we're not really sure of the diagnosis or we need more information to be able to appropriately manage uh, their condition. And it's just, and I think advanced is a key word here, yes. and the multimodality. So talk to us about the different modalities. What does that mean? Sure. So in cardiology, we are blessed to have many different imaging modalities that can help us sort through a diagnosis or sort through a problem that a patient is having. My two um, modalities of strongest focus are echocardiography, both transthoracic echo, so an ultrasound from the chest, and transesophageal echo, ultrasound that goes into the esophagus and gets us much closer to the heart to better see those structures. Um, my second modality that I really work with is cardiac MRI, which is a newer modality. There is some experience with that in this city. Um, I am bringing kind of a cardiologist perspective to that. Other modalities that I am trained in include cardiac CT and nuclear cardiology, so SPECT scans, PET scans, et cetera. So the term nuclear, we hear that a lot too. Yeah. And so what does that really, what does that term mean? Yes, so it sounds, it sounds much scarier than it is, <laughs> but it's basically a radio tracer injected into the body and we watch where it goes in the heart. Um, the most common nuclear test that we do in cardiology is a nuclear stress test, but there's also other nuclear tests that we can do, pyrophosphate scans, looking for amyloid, um, PET we can do looking for sarcoid, et cetera. So the most common one is a nuclear stress test and that helps us determine the blood flow to the heart. Okay, and you are the first one here to do this. You're the only one here that brings this advanced imaging. Correct, I'm the only uh, advanced imaging trained cardiologist. Many cardiologists work with some or a few of these modalities, uh, but I am trained in all of them with an advanced fellowship year. So this is really my area of focus and area of expertise. And how did the, the need come about? What was specific about, oh, we've, we really need to have this here? Sure, so I think just the ability to have someone who can comprehensively look at a patient, what's going on with them, what are our questions that still need to be answered, and come up with a really tailored plan to either get to that answer or formulate a treatment plan that's gonna best serve the patient. And will this be like a cardiologist has a patient and says, I really need some, I really need some more imaging yes. in here specific. To yes, oftentimes to it is a cardiologist who says, you know, we've got this patient and we've done everything we can. We're not sure what to do next. Can you help us understand better 
will the heart muscle improve with more blood flow? Is this regurgitant valve really as bad as we think it is? Kind of where do we go from here? And sometimes it's just a primary care doctor who hears a murmur and wants their patient to be evaluated. So I'm certainly comfortable with seeing all of that and really enjoy all across the spectrum getting to work with patients from very simple things that we can fix quickly and the more complex things that take a lot of delving into and different modalities to sort through. Wow, how amazing to have all these benefits right here that you can tell so much about someone's heart and how their, how their body is, is reacting to anything. And do you, do you decide which modality with them when the patient comes to you and you decide hear everything and, and, and see them? Do you decide what, yes, what they Yes, oftentimes need? when patients are sent to me, the question is, what's the next best test? And so oftentimes I'll be able to provide some guidance, say, um, I really think this patient would be best served with a transesophageal echo, or it sounds like we need to do a cardiac MRI for that patient. So um, oftentimes it is, and sometimes it is a modality that's already been performed, a test that's already been acquired, and having me look at it as kind of a second opinion to go through, what do I see, what do I think, okay. et cetera. And, and can you tell us, is there any type of condition that, you, oh, that's gonna be an MRI, or is it very individual to the patient? It really is very individual to the patient, and every modality has its strengths and its weaknesses, um, and every modality is better suited for certain patients, depending on what's going on. Oftentimes, it will, really will take multiple modalities to get to an answer. So. Um, it's very rare that I see someone who only gets a cardiac MRI. Almost every time they get a cardiac MRI and an echo. Mm -hmm. um, just as an example, oftentimes it really does take multiple tests yeah. to determine what's the next best step. Mm -hmm. And how nice to be right there. You're the one <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to do it. Now, are you the actual one who actually performs the the, the tests and the MRIs and the... So it depends on what the modality is. Um, for the MRIs, we have some very well-trained MRI technologists, um, and they are the ones acquiring the images. When the test is ordered for me, I'm sitting there with them, making sure that we're protocoling the studies appropriately. I am post-processing the images, and in their real time to say, hey, based on what I see, let's do this one more shot. Let's do this additional picture. So it's nice for me to be right there. Um, transesophageal echo, I am generally performing those with an echo sonographer, mm -hmm. so we work in conjunction on those. Um, and the transthoracic echoes, almost every time it is an echo sonographer acquiring the images and then sending them to me to review. To review. So how nice that we hear this over again with Willis Knight, and it really is a team with everything you do. Absolutely. I could not do what I do without really strong support from echo sonographers, MRI technologists, nurses, other physicians. It is most definitely a team sport and something that we all work together to get the best answer for the patient. Right. And how comforting for the patient to know that you're right there. Yes. You're yes. right there. The I'm very way. easy to find. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's there. She's yep. right there. And then ultimately you are the one that reviews it and reads it and then decides. Correct. But you're there the whole process. You're not just waiting for what they do. Correct. You're there. Correct. I'm there working in conjunction with their physician. Um, Every case we see, there is a discussion about with their primary care physician or their primary cardiologist uh, determining what's the next best step. I 
rarely make any decisions all alone. Mm -hmm. It takes more than just me to make the magic happen, for sure. I mean, it is magic, and it's so nice to have that confirmation along yeah. the way for everyone to say this. And, and it must be really uh, um, fulfilling, too, when someone catches something, too, and points out something, and you're in agreement, and, and to really work it out. Absolutely, absolutely. There's nothing better than having a patient come and say, I just feel so bad, and I don't know why. We work through the process. We get them an answer. We send them off to be treated. They're treated, and they come back three months later saying, I feel so great. I didn't know I could feel this good anymore. So it really is a very rewarding field and something I feel very blessed to be able to work in every day. And that's key right there too. Do you hear that a lot? That people say, I didn't know how good I could feel. Yes, yes. I was gonna live with this yes, until exactly. I couldn't. Exactly, and I think knowing, you know, in 2022, it's about so much more than just extending your life, but improving the quality of life and yes. knowing that we can help you do that. We just, we need to know. We need to know how we can help and we gotta get the answer. And you feel like it's all kind of moving that way, which it's always been, you know, extending the life, but now it's right. really less extended, but let's improve the quality Right, of I think there's a living. huge focus on that, as there should be. Yeah. Um, quality of life is super important and we want yeah. you to have the best quality of life you can for the years you have remaining. Yeah, because you hear a lot of, of people um, in the past, not so much lately because I think it is based on a medicine. So the doctors I talk to all the time are just so caring about individually yes. um, taking care of people. But it really is, you hear people say all the time, I don't want to live that long. Right. I don't want to live like this <laughs> right. any longer. I don't know, no, no, exactly. no. But now they're like, yes, I do if I can feel that good. Exactly, and recognizing I think what's important to each patient. So. For one patient, it may be really important that he's able to go out and take his dog for a walk. For another patient, it may be important that she's able to read with her grandchildren. You know, it's just, it's so dependent on the individual, what their goals are, and we take all of that very much into account when we're making these treatment plans. And I bet it means a lot to you too, being home. Let's remind yes. everybody again, walk us through um, your studies, where you went, and how you brought it all back home. Let's, yes. let's find so, out about Katie Gale. Thank you. <laughs> um, I am from Shreveport, grew up here, went to Bird High School, um, went to LSU, and when I got to LSU, I was kind of unsure what I was going to do. My father is a physician, my grandfather is a physician, um, and I think it was kind of a natural fit to me. So decided I was going to major in biology and try to get into med school, but along the way picked up a minor in nutrition and a minor in English just because that was fun and interesting to me. Came back to Shreveport to medical school and really enjoyed my time here. Initially in medical school, I really thought I was going to pursue a career as a cardiothoracic surgeon. Um, I loved being in the OR. I thought the pathology was fascinating. But as time went on, I realized that what I thought was most fun was getting to the diagnosis. And I thought that I could do more of that as a cardiologist. And I think from there, a career in multimodality imaging was kind of a natural fit. If you want to find out what's going on, you need to figure out what all these imaging modalities are about. So that was a natural fit for me. Moved to Nashville, have been in Nashville for seven years before moving back. Did my internal medicine residency there uh, at Vanderbilt. Was fortunate to match to my cardiology fellowship at Vanderbilt and then was the first advanced cardiac imaging fellow um, with a dedicated super fellowship or advanced fellowship year there. Um, 
learned from incredible physicians, nurses, technologists. I can't emphasize enough just the breadth of knowledge that I was exposed to. And um, we have my husband, who's also from Shreveport, have a baby. So it was then time to come home, bring the baby home, and start go. a career in Shreveport. <laughs> okay. Yep. How old is your baby? She is almost nine months old. Oh, yep. congratulations on <laughs> everything. And the you. accomplishments and then the family, too. I didn't Thank know that. You. That's wonderful. Yeah, that is a really good decision to come mm -hmm. home. That kind of yep. clinches it, especially when they're young enough to, yes. you know, you want to get settled yes. before school starts yes. and with family and all that. Well, I'm sure your family is just beyond ecstatic that you're, you're coming they, here. They'll yeah. keep us for a little while longer. Yeah, I think so. They're <laughs> probably pretty happy about that. Yeah. And so a, a daughter and mm -hmm. you being a mother and women in your family, let's yes. talk about women's heart health in particular. Yeah. So we were speaking earlier, um, cardiovascular disease is still the number one killer of women. One in three women in their lifetime will be affected by some form of cardiovascular disease, and 45% of women over the age of 40 will have cardiovascular disease. So it's super prevalent and something I think we don't discuss enough when it comes to women. Women's heart disease is also hard. There are risk factors that are oftentimes missed. So for example, a lot of pregnancy complications, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, a history of preterm delivery can put you at risk in the future for cardiovascular disease. And women's heart disease often does not present the same as it presents in men. So I think recognizing that um, as kind of a undertreated population, if you will, is important and something that I'm really interested in, especially from the prevention side of things. Not, you know, of course we want to treat you once you have a problem, but how do we keep you from having that problem in the first place? Oh, yes. I'm so glad you're here to talk about that, too. Yeah. Uh, we have Claudia on the line for okay, you. Great. Hi, Claudia. What's your question for the doctor? Hi. Uh, hi, doctor. M my question is um, that Procedures that my doctor just, my cardiologist just explained to me are invasive mm -hmm. procedures. I, I want to know if what you do will help determine why I'm going into atria so frequently or where the problem is that's causing me to go into atria. Sure. Without it. Without it being invasive, is, I mean, can you, do you kind of understand what I'm saying? Yes, yes, I do. And I think that's a great question um, and something that a lot of patients are interested in. What is the least invasive way we can still get a good answer? Um, oftentimes, some of my imaging tests will suggest an etiology for atrial fibrillation. So we know that when the top left chamber of your heart becomes enlarged, that can put you at risk for AFib. We know that um, if you have a valve between the top and bottom left chamber that's very leaky, that can put you at risk for AFib. We know that certain disease processes that can deposit substances in the heart can put you at risk for AFib. And we also know that sometimes AFib just happens. So I think for you, it really depends on, you know, what of these tests have been done before? Is there anything we haven't looked at? Um, and still right now we do know that the 
permanent treatment for atrial fibrillation or an ablation, it's still an invasive procedure. So I would say the answer to your question is probably yes and no. Um, there may be more testing that could be done that's non-invasive, but also the definitive treatment for atrial fibrillation in the form of an ablation is still an invasive procedure. Yes, I understand. Thank you. I thank you. Yes, but I I'd rather do this first. <laughs> the imaging you're doing first. I understand. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for calling. And that was a really great opportunity to ask you really about this imaging and if it yes. will help and they have those kind of questions. Do I want to do this or not? What's best for me? And sometimes we just don't know what we don't know. Right, exactly. And I think that in almost every circumstance when you are the patient, getting as much information and as much understanding as you can and really working with your physician to come up with a treatment plan that's personalized to you and that you feel very comfortable with is always important. Right. And do you encourage patients to really, really not be afraid to really keep asking and not just settle for a plan if you have some questions or if there's something you're uneasy about, you just keep asking until you do feel comfortable. Yes, absolutely. Um, patient education is very, very important to me and I want to know that whatever the patient decides, they are making a well-informed decision, even if that decision is ultimately to go with a different treatment plan than the one I'm recommending, the most important thing to me is that they feel informed, they feel like they have the information they need to make a good decision, and they feel empowered to make that decision for themselves once they have all that information. Yeah, and do you feel like sometimes a patient doesn't really give themselves enough credit? They don't want to make anyone mad. They do think, well, they're the doctor, they know best. But really, our intuition, we need to give ourselves some credit. Yes. You, either way, it's not that you know better, but if there is something there, that you just don't feel right about, it's okay to keep asking until you do. And unless you're told it's an emergency, take your time. Yes, absolutely, and I think you said it exactly right. Trust your intuition. If something doesn't feel right or if something doesn't sound right, keep asking questions. Um, and don't be afraid to say, hey, I don't really understand this, or can we talk a little bit more about this because I'm not sure I feel comfortable yet. Right, and maybe to also have an advocate too there if they have family members who are out of love, really are pushing them to do something or asking them not to do something if they're feel in the middle to let you do yes, that, to yes. bring them in The to doctor talk can to you. always be the bad guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> let the doctor really inform everybody and not yes. be afraid to say, that way you're not disagreeing with the family member or friend, but you're saying, you know what, will you come with me then? Yes. And let I want you to hear what the doctor yes. is telling me. I would say for 99.9% .9 of my patient encounters, if there is family around that the patient is okay with being in the room, it's really important to me that everybody has an understanding of what we're doing, why we're doing it, why I'm suggesting what I'm suggesting, because it's very easy as a patient to be so overwhelmed with all of this information and walk out of the clinic and say, well, she told me I was doing this, but I don't remember anything yes. else. Sometimes it's nice to have that second set of ears that can be a little more in tune to the facts versus the emotion of the decision, because they're both equally important, but we certainly want to be sure that everybody knows what they need to know, 
feels like they have a good understanding of the options and are proceeding with whatever treatment plan they choose in a very well-informed manner. Yeah, and no one means to, but you certainly don't want to miss translation of something and right. you get right down to it. And it's like, well, you told me this. Well, that's what I thought. Right, and, exactly. Yeah. And so if, say, someone, you have a patient and a family member comes in with them and then the family member has questions, does the patient have to give permission for that family member to call you directly? Yes. How does that work? Yes. Um, <clears throat> I would not disclose any information about the patient without express permission from the patient. Um, so to me, it's often nice to have the family in the room, ask the patient, may I speak freely in front of this family member, or would you like me to ask them to step out and we can talk together first? Either way is fine, but absolutely, um, we would never sh disclose any medical information about that patient without their express permission. Yeah, and I think that's really comforting to know today to talk about that and let them know that because some days you might feel like I'm bringing in my daughter or my mother or my my family member to listen, but I don't want to lose control here. Right. And I want to make sure that I'm still the one in control or if I want to hand over control, exactly. I still want to say, okay, let her handle it or let him handle it. But exactly. you still want to know that you have that power. You have the say when it comes down to it. Absolutely. It's your body and your life. It's your body, it's your life and ultimately your decision is the most important decision. What you want, what your goals are, are the most important goals for us all to be aware of. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit more about women's heart health and why some of the symptoms aren't recognized? Because it happens in women differently than in men, right? Sure. For a long time, we thought that women did not have heart attacks as frequently as men. Women does not have heart disease as frequently as men. And we know now that that's just not true. But the way women and men describe their symptoms may be very different. So a woman may say, oh, I just had some neck pain, or oh, I had some arm pain, or I just kind of had a heaviness. Whereas the classic description of angina or true cardiac pain often comes from men's description, a squeezing tightness that's grabbing at your chest that just won't let up. And we know now that sometimes women's symptoms are just very different from men's. In my experience, women are also more likely to kind of say, oh, I'm probably fine. You know, I probably slept wrong or I just tweaked my shoulder when I lifted that bag. But I think it's really important if you know how prevalent cardiovascular disease in women is, hopefully your antenna goes up a little bit. If you have any of those symptoms, you, you can say, you know, maybe it's nothing, but I should probably tell somebody about this and get checked out. Yeah, just in case. Right. But how, how wonderful it is. I'd love for someone to say, you probably slept wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I'd love exactly. the doctor to tell me that exactly. instead of me assume it. Exactly. So, and what type of, like, while we're talking about maybe shoulder pain, and can it go in, it can, it can go to the neck, can it also go into the jaw Sure, sometimes? neck, jaw. Um, women often present with it actually radiating to their back, to mm -hmm. the shoulder blade itself. So it can truly look very different. Um, and it's important to just know that this is something that can happen and something that you should be aware of. And if you have any symptoms that you're worried about, don't just blow them off. Come in, get checked out. Let's make sure everything is really just a musculoskeletal problem mm -hmm. and not some other yeah. cardiac problem. Is there a certain type of pain that it is? And is it like how long does it last? Does that sure you in? It can be, be very different for every patient. I would say typically pain that is lasting, you know, minutes, not seconds and not days mm -hmm. is more likely to be cardiac, but the heart can do whatever it wants to do. <laughs> so I don't want anybody to be dissuaded from coming in to get checked out because of these descriptors. Um, oftentimes it's a 
grabbing, squeezing, tight pain, but it can be anything. It can be sharp, it can feel stabbing. So I'd just say, really pay attention to your body. And if you have any symptoms that are new for you or that haven't been investigated, it's important to get those investigated. Yeah, because I think that's what we all look for. And mm -hmm. with doctors, with everything, whether it's breast health or heart health or anything, you're really looking for change. Change. So know your body, yes. know how you react during certain things. But if this is different, then don't be afraid to call right away. Absolutely, <laughs> I think that's the key. If it's different for you, somebody needs to know about it. Yeah, very good. Yeah, and that's what we need to remember. So what, if someone says, oh, that's yep. nothing, go yep. quit. No, for me, it is, and I wanna ask. Right. So go for it. Absolutely. Yeah, and um, so, and let's talk about the statistics again one more time that sure. happened to women. Sure, so uh, women die of heart disease more than any other cause of death. One in three women in their lifetime will be affected by cardiovascular disease, and over 45% of women over the age of 40 have some form of cardiovascular disease. And so what is, when we're ha feeling that pain, or those mm -hmm. symptoms, what is actually happening that caused that? Sure, so What's for a doing? true angina or true heart pain that we talk about, oftentimes it's a blockage in one of the heart arteries. What's really interesting about women with angina is that we talk about always, you know, plaque building up in the arteries and causing a flow limitation, the heart's not getting enough blood flow. In women, you can actually have different reasons for the arteries not getting enough blood flow. One entity that is more researched today than it has been, but still we need to know more about, is something called SCAD, or spontaneous coronary artery dissection. Mm -hmm. um, your coronary artery has a dissection, and that is what limits the blood flow. It's not plaque buildup or cholesterol, it's actually the artery itself being damaged. Women also can have a vasospasm, so the artery itself kind of spasms down. Again, nothing to do with cholesterol or plaque, just a spasm of the artery itself. So I think those are two things that are a little different in women. Um, certainly men can have SCAD, men can have spasm, but we see it more in women. So uh, the same result from a very different process. Okay, and so say a woman is having this, these symptoms, yep. and have it for a few minutes, yep. and then it goes away, and it comes back again, maybe the next day or later, and you see a pattern, or maybe even you go right away. What's the next step? You, do you call your physician first? Do you go to your regular yes. doctor? I would, if you have an established primary care doctor or cardiologist, I would call them. Most likely, they're gonna tell you to go ahead and go in to the emergency department to be checked out. If you're very lucky and your cardiologist has an opening right then and there, you <laughs> might be able to get in then and there, but I would say, reach out to your doctor, let them guide you. They may be able to take a description over the phone that can help them feel either more comfortable and that they can wait to see you in clinic or feel like you really need to go ahead and go into the emergency room. Okay, and if it happens that you don't have a regular doctor, yep. maybe you just don't, maybe you move to a new area or you just really just pretty healthy, sure. you just don't have a regular doctor, that, do you go into an ER or a, a clinic or what do you If you are having do? chest pain and you are worried that it is your heart or shoulder pain, jaw pain, neck pain, and you are worried it is your heart, it is very appropriate to go to the emergency department and be checked out. Okay, and then chances are from there, yep. will you be called or? It kind of depends. Yeah. So I am a non-invasive cardiologist. I do not do heart caths. Um, I do not do stents or interventions of that nature. 
But down the road, if we had a question about why this was happening, et cetera, et cetera, certainly multimodality imaging may be involved. Great. I'm glad you brought that up because when Claudia said she just wants to see versa or see if what you do would right. keep her from inv you know, invasive treatment. Right. Let's talk about the difference. Sure. You're kind of testing imaging and actually invasive. Sure. Okay. So cardiologists are kind of lumped into two buckets. The invasive cardiologists, these are people who do electrophysiology procedures, do heart catheterization procedures, et cetera. And then the non-invasive cardiologists, that's someone who does EKGs, does echoes, cardiac MRIs, um, someone more like what I do. Mm -hmm. So I think recognizing that each cardiologist probably has a little bit different pathway to training. There's a lot of overlap between the buckets, but certainly your cardiologist may be an interventionalist or your cardiologist may not be. So if I saw someone who needed a heart stent, I would need to refer them to a partner or colleague to be able to perform that procedure. Once again, all that team, there's That's some right. people, you know, if you don't do it, then you know someone who That's does right. and what's best for the, that right. individual patient, exactly. which is so comforting to know. Exactly. So you're gonna look at me. You're not gonna look at what generally happens or here's what happens in women. We'll, we'll start here. Right. Um, it's really right. listening and seeing what's going on. So what does the role, the actual role that the MRI Place. Sure, so the MRI is a really neat test um, and it's very good at looking at the heart muscle itself. So an ultrasound of the heart, we can look at heart squeeze, a heart catheterization, we can look at heart arteries. And MRI, we actually look at the composition of the muscle itself and based on some of the characteristics can actually say, does it look like this person has had a heart attack before? Does it look like this person has a deposition disease that is affecting the heart? Does it look like this is just an idiopathic problem that arose for reasons we don't yet understand? So really understanding the muscle composition of the heart is a real strength of cardiac MRI. We can also image scar in the heart with cardiac MRI, which is very cool and has some prognostic implications. We know the more scar you have in your heart, the more likely you are to have dangerous or life-threatening arrhythmias. And we can act preemptively to work to prevent that with either medication, surgery, or an ICD or a heart device um, should you need it. So I think that cardiac MRI is one of the most powerful tools we as cardiologists have just because it can be so informative and it's something that we can't look at any other way. Right. So incredible. Thank you so much. It's been such a yes, pleasure meeting you, you today. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for joining us for Helpline 3 today. We'll see you next time.